when the milk churn was empty, the, the, some of the men would come down to the hotel with, a, with their milk uh, uh, jug and, uh, and ask could they have it filled and the, the barman would fill it on, out of the tap and put the top on, back on the, the, the can and uh, they carried their, uh, their beer home in a can. This is Guy Matthews, publican, AHA life member and now author. When, when they opened there, they, they were doing 109 18-gallon kegs per week. No one had ever seen a carpet in a bar and everyone thought he was absolutely crazy because bars usually finished up in the night time, wet and sticky and, and, and hose them out. 12 noon, the boys had a half an hour to break from the factories and we would have to have 60 pints lined up at the bar at the Mansfield Park. In those days, the AHA had their own hotel inspectors that went around and policed how the hotels operated. You could be prosecuted by the AHA. I lost $50 on ACDC, and I think I must be the only person that's ever lost, <laughs> lost money on the door take of ACDC. Over the next hour, Guy gives us an insight into the way hotels used to be. Stories of ships delivering wooden kegs to country pubs, how the world's first drive through bottle shop really came about, and how the Matthews family managed to get around restrictions placed on women working in hotels. These are stories you don't want to miss. Today, my guest is Guy Matthews, a distinguished life member of the AHA and a member of one of the great family hotel dynasties in South Australia. We're delighted that Guy is chronicling that history and providing an insight into the way pubs used to operate so that this knowledge is retained for future generations. Let me take you back because um, this is a, a story that goes, that goes back in time. It's April 1942. Australia is at war. Rationing is in place. Seymour and Doris Matthews have been married for eight years and they have two little boys, you, age two, and your brother Tony. He's aged seven. Seymour and Doris pack up their life and make the move from Adelaide to Wyala to take over the licence of the Bayview Hotel. Um, I'm thinking it must have been a major decision for them, or do you think that something like this was always going to happen, given your father's enormous drive? Yes, it. Um, yeah, he. It was. Uh, I think that it was um, very much uh, a passion of Seymour's to uh, get into the hospitality industry, and as you might realise, in those days, uh, a, a married woman uh, could not work. Uh, so Dossett was a, a stay-at-home mother yes. uh, and couldn't get out to work, yet she had the driving pack. Uh, when they went to Wyala in uh, 1940, the population was something like 2,400 people. Uh, by 1945, there was over 5,000. They estimated between five and 7,000 people in Wyala and they, they, they couldn't really count them. <laughs> yes. They were coming in uh, uh, fast and leaving fast. And, and we were in the war years. And we were in the right end of the war mm. years then. Mm. And in, 19, in August 1953, uh, Seymour became the licensee of the... Um, uh, 1943. 1943, yeah. yeah, yeah. Seymour became yeah. the licensee of the Spencer Hotel and Doris took over the licence of the um, Bayview Hotel and only... 
wives of um, hoteliers could be licensees uh, un, or an unmarried woman. Yes. Uh, just women weren't allowed to be licensees of hotels ad lib. No, no. I'm really curious. Tell me what country pubs were like in the 1940s and 50s. Um. Country pubs, they, 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 were, they were interesting, I think. You'd had towns like Piri that had, you know, 12 hotels in the town. Port Augusta, 10 hotels in mm. Port Augusta back in those days. Uh, so the, the, the hotels were a very integral part of, uh, of all country ta- hotels. In fact, under law, they had to provide uh, facilities for taking in um, injured people, badly injured people, dead people. Yes. Uh, they could. They had to have, be able to do have autopsies done in hotels. Uh, if there wasn't a police station within a, 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 a mile, they had to be the police station for the uh, for putting up people that were that, uh, that, that there were no prisons for them. So they had to be locked in in, 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 in hotel rooms. Yes. So, uh, so hotels were a very, and they were the only places in most country towns that had big enough rooms to hold meetings and that type of thing. So the hotels were a very integral part, plus the general public in that, those days liked to have a drink. They liked to have a, <laughs> and, they liked and, to have a beer in particular. Yes, yeah. that's for sure. What, what, what was the Royal Hotel at Crystal Brook and the Barrier Hotel at Port Perry? What were they like? The Royal, they, they were both very run-down hotels, and that, in fact, in those days... Uh, um, all the kitchens were it's still wood-fired stoves. Um, they all had wood-fired stoves still there. Uh, some of the lucky ones had a, an electric bain-marie to uh, to keep food hot afterwards. But everyone cooked on uh, wood wood-fired stoves, and mm. they, they were the best uh, ovens <laughs> you could get, actually. Um, but they, and then the, you had to stoke the boilers for the hot water in the uh, for the bedrooms and uh, that type of thing. And then when you got to the critical part of the hotels, most of the hotels were still bare copper wires running along um, wooden beams to uh, to uh, put on electricity. There were the copper wires on wooden beams that uh, uh, gouged out channels in the yes. wooden beams uh, yes. to uh, run electricity to bedrooms and that sort of thing. You had mentioned that he and Tom Pearce... Um purchased beer uh, at the right time as well. So what happened was um, that Australia-wide there, was a, a, there were um, quotas put on all hotels and, uh, and with a, a, a major industrial town as Wyala was and, and uh, they had a munitions factory and everything there, the, they had to supply <laughs> liquor for, for this growing population so they couldn't use past figures. So what they did, and Tom Pierce was very much in, because he was on the um, executive of the AHA at the time, uh, he uh, pumped that uh, that they open up Wyala as a, an open town so as much liquor as they required could be purchased and they got that through, Tom Playford got that through um, the government, yes. uh, the federal government and uh, Tom was very, very... Uh, strong with the federal government because uh, Wyala was a crucial town mm. for the war effort. And so, um, uh, there, therefore, um, um, 
they could buy. So what they what they would do is um, at Christmas time and that they would load up when prices were good and with with beer, and they'd keep their sheds full. And um, later in the year, when when restrictions were on harder. Uh, they could sell maybe two bottles or four bottles of beer to customers, whereas everywhere else in the state, uh, people were limited to buying one bottle of beer at a time. So um, just coming back to the earlier question about what life was like in country pubs in the 40s and 50s, I'm I'm, I'm interested about um, beer kegs because they wouldn't have been stainless steel. No, 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 no. So no, tell, no, me, tell me how everything worked as far as... Yes, um, basically there was, there was uh, um, uh, a five-gallon keg, a ten-gallon keg. These are these, these are, are wooden, wooden kegs, wooden with, barrels, you know, wooden barrels. Yes. You, you see them now. They still use a lot of wooden barrels for wine and mm. uh, that type of thing. And they were, they were like a big wine barrel. Yes, uh, most of the barrels you see now are you know garden barrels, but that same same principle. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, small hotels would get in a, a, a little hotel and have a five-gallon keg under the bar, and uh, and pour it there. But the the bigger hotels had their ke- their kegs down the, the the cellars, and basically the, for bar use they tapped a, an eighteen-gallon uh, um, Kildican. Kildican. Um, Kildican yeah. was the eighteen-gallon one. Uh, and, but then there was an, another bigger one, a 36-gallon keg, uh, a firkin, uh, which um, uh, they um, um, used for bottling beer. They, they, a lot of hotels quartered their own beer. In other words, they bottled their own beer and sold it themselves. Mm. Yes. And, and well, hang, let me go back. So hang on. The smallest one was a... A pin, pin that's right. and the thirty-six was the that was a ton, a ton, a ton. Right. The first yeah, was four point five. So there was quite there was there was a fair old range. Not uh, getting, yeah, yeah. Get and they now. all had a specific use. Yeah, and, and thirty-six gallons. Okay, mm, mm. but but um, you know, if you if you didn't come with bottles, you could you could come with other implements to yeah, get back, your beer. Back before you know, before really quarting. Well, quarting had been going along on, on for a long time in the hotels and the. Uh, the Quarting is the that, practice that is making of the, making decanting the, 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 decanting the beer, beer from uh, from the thirty six gallon kegs into a, a, a quart mm. a, a quart of uh, beer and then putting a, a crown seal on it and selling it that way, which is about a litre. Yeah, it was about a litre, yeah. and um, and uh, uh, this was uh, um, the brewery still were, wouldn't was that were doing their bottled beer. In a pickaxe bottle, uh-huh. uh, but they couldn't keep up with the production uh, that was required for uh, for all the hotels. So quarting was uh, one way that um, hotels could get out, get more beer to the public. But uh, it was a laborious job and uh, mm. very, mm. very laborious, and you could virtually only do it after the hotel was shut. Okay. Um, and the, virtually a lot of hotels, you never took a Sunday off because what you did, you spent all Sunday. Quarting, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but if a, I didn't, if I turned up and I didn't have a bottle, I could. Yeah. So I, what they did, we, 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 there, you could come there now. Remember, all the milk you got it in these days was uh, the milk cart man came around and he had a churn, and the boy on the back of the milk cart would go and get your can, milk can, mm. bring it out, and you put fill it up with uh, a, a, a quart of uh, 
uh, milk and uh, put it back on the veranda again mm. and uh, some of them had money in it or had an account. But that was a very similar thing. When the milk churn was empty, the, the, some of the men had come down to the hotel with a with their milk uh, jug and uh, and ask could they have it filled and the, the barman would fill it on, over, out of the tap and put the top on back on the the, the can and uh, they carried their uh, their beer home in a can a, a bucket of, a bucket of beer a bucket of beer <laughs> yes, yes. and I guess that never happened on a Sunday though no no, no never no, no, never not. on a Sunday. How in in Wyala, um, How did the they, the kegs get to Wyala? They come by road or no? No, the road transport was well, there was virtually negligible. I mean, there was uh, uh, there was a, there was a road. Well, there was a dirt road from Port Pirie right the way around. If you wanted to go from Adelaide to um, uh, to Wyala, you you'd get leave. Um, Wyala on a dirt road, go to Port Augusta, and from Port Augusta up through the Pitchy Ritchie Pass or Horrocks Pass to Clare, and that's where you went to Clare, and then you came down from Clare to Gawla and into Adelaide that way. But back in back in uh, in the late forties, they started uh, to um, develop the road from uh, Port Augusta to Port Pirie to um, down through uh, Snowtown. Um, and to um, Port Wakefield, and that was a dirt road for well up into the into the nineteen fifties. It was a dirt road. Uh, yes, uh, late late. 50s. So it wasn't coming by road. No, no, so it didn't come by road. So what they they did, the um, Adelaide Steamship Company had two or three vessels, but the Muta and the Manora mm-hmm. uh, that ran from Adelaide to um, Piri and Wyala Port Lincoln weekly. And uh, so um, uh, to start off with the early days, it was that they would bring the beer all the way to, um, to or bring all the products from Adelaide to Wyala. <coughs> but later they, they found it more economical to um, uh, have it railed to um, Port Pirie, then put on the boat at Port Pirie and, and boated across from Port Pirie mm. to Wyala. Mm. And, uh, <coughs> that very, went on through right through up into the fifties. Mm. Yeah, very very different to to today. Yeah. April nineteen fifty um, saw Seymour's first Adelaide hotel venture um, with the New Exchange Hotel. Uh, that was in Port Adelaide. Uh, first of all, what he did, he separated the uh, front bar from the and the saloon bar, and in the saloon bar he did it up uh, with a lot of. Uh, Stainless steel, um, uh, glass, fridges, yes. and one of the things he did do, he put carpet on the floor. Oh. Carpets in a bar. Yeah. No one had ever seen a carpet in a bar, and everyone thought he was absolutely crazy. Yes, because bars usually finished up in the night time, wet and sticky, and, and, and you hose them out. And hose them out. So uh, he um, he put the, he built this and set this up for uh, for. These clientele, this clientele of sea captains, mm. uh, businessmen, and that type of thing, and <clears throat> was very popular. Uh, upstairs, he set a little di- had put a little dining room upstairs, and uh, from the ki- kitchen, he put a dumb waiter up to, upstairs, and uh, and offered them uh, uh, dining facilities uh, in uh, in a private upstairs dining room, which uh, also became uh, very renowned in the district. When when I took over. Um, Opening the hotel, uh, uh, the, the hotel opened at six o'clock in the morning, and uh, 
uh, it was a regular thing that they, they had a um, someone from the wharf would come over and start throwing rocks at my window at half past five <laughs> 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 to make sure that I was, <laughs> make sure I was up at six o'clock to be down because sometimes I didn't sleep in because it, it, was, it was six o'clock closing but uh, and the, never closed at six o'clock there. Um, and, and that was because of the well, local constabulary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The water police had their officers there and their boat, the water police boats were tied up there and they, and, uh, uh, they had their, their headquarters and it was separate from the, um, from the regular police that mm. were just up the road, another couple of hundred yards on the opposite side of the road. But they, they would come into the hotel of a night time and maybe pretty late actually, but they would not get there maybe far past five, six. And they had a little private den that they would, uh, we had allocated to them and they would sit in the den and uh, and that's where they would uh, participate uh, their evening and they would stay there till they said they wanted to go so the rest of the state had six o'clock everything was shut at six yep. dead on the dot the bells <laughs> rang but the one thing that these boys did allow then was he that we could and not uh we, we they didn't encourage it but they did not uh say that people had to leave the bar when they were in their room so and many a nights that that uh, the bars would clear out a bit at six because the uh, uh the, the lot of the people knew that six o'clock was the time mm. to go mm. but you know you'd, you'd get a, a a group of uh, quite a few stragglers that would stay on and and then all of a sudden about half past eight uh, someone would come out from the, the little den and say we're closing now and uh Eight o'clock, nine o'clock, everybody had disappeared. And then I could go out and have a night out. Seymour knew uh, the Tollies, uh, Rake Tolly, very well. And uh, Rake was a, uh, a very prosperous gentleman. Uh, and, uh, uh, and he... Uh, suggested to Seymour that they take over the lease of the uh, King Craig, which Seymour and Tom did, and turned it into a very, very successful hotel. Now, in 1950s, uh, with the Korean War, uh, wool hit one pound per pound, uh, and Maricourt was the, the wool capital of South mm, Australia. Okay. And so... These farmers, these wool cockies in uh, uh, Narracourt, uh, became very wealthy very quick. And um, two things that did occur uh, at that time, uh, the, um, uh, these farmers would come into the front bar mm -hmm. and they would order uh, Verve Clicker champagne, <laughs> French champagne, <laughs> they love their French champagne. <laughs> and Narracourt became the biggest... Uh, seller of Jaguar Mark Seven Jaguars in Australia, Narracourt, uh, and they, there were more Mark Seven sold in uh, in Narracourt than any other place in Australia. Seymour, one of the things that people do remember about Seymour, one of his, his uh, you know, his his um, claims to greatness is is what he actually did, um, you know, at the Largs Pier. That was our first. Yeah. Can you, can you yeah. So here again, most like all great things, are uh, no, usually an accident. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, what what happened in uh, in in um, 1955 um, came um, 
and the, the renovations were underway, but had, the front bar had been finished. They'd, they'd mm-hmm. done the front bar, uh, but they hadn't. But, and hotels in those days had uh, walk-in bottle shops, and usually they were attached to the end of uh, of the front bar. Okay, and. Uh, uh, so at the uh, the largs, the, um, the the bottle shop at the end of the front bar had a uh, was, was had a shelving and everything, but didn't have any storage area mm-hmm. for 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 beer and, uh, and 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 spirits. So what would they had to do was they had to uh, use the um, out the backyard were some beautiful stables, big stables that were, were designed to take the coaches and horses that had come down from Adelaide and they were stabled over it in this big building. Uh, but that had been now vacated. And, uh, yes. Uh, so um, what they would do is um, they, they would load this building with all the beer uh, that they um, needed for Christmas and the brewery uh, would offer in the beginning of December so there wasn't a mad rush at the end of December, the brewery would offer uh, to load these uh, stores up and not charge the hotels till the new year for the beer that they'd uh, mm. sold over Christmas. So yes. that was a great advantage. So um, Seymour by um, mid-December had, had uh, well stocked because they, they, they knew there's got a big summer to come up in, uh, and he'd been used to stocking up in uh, Wyala, so he'd yes. uh, made uh, um, good progress in stocking up uh, this um, uh, this shed and. Um, Came um, the um, close to Christmas. Um, Christmas happened to be on a uh, in that uh, year fifty five was on, on a weekend, mm-hmm. uh, like it is going to be this year. Uh, and um, uh, so, therefore, um, uh, he had to have everything in in store ready for the, for the, the twenty this weekend. So the week before Christmas, um, we were looking at it and. Um, funny thing I said to him, I said, said to Seymour, why, why don't we on the Friday um, put um, a, um, t- trestles and a, a till out in the in front of the, the store over there, a bit like we, what we as kids... The, in front of the old stables. Stables, yeah. yeah. yeah a bit mm. like uh, what the, me and my mate did at, uh, actually at uh, Seacliff a, a year or so. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so Seymour said, oh, that's a great idea, so... With the then chap that was running the bottle shop, Phil Hills, uh, he and myself, uh, and we just thought we'd stay there. And uh, on the, then the Friday, the first week before Christmas, on the Friday, we uh, made up a big round sign and put it on the gates leading into the car park that ran to the uh, to the stables. And then you drove up the car park, and the stables were at the end of the yes. car park. And, uh, we put a big sign on the gate uh, just saying drive in for a bottle of beer uh, and uh, this sign and we just sat there and uh, on the Friday afternoon and uh, gradually a few cars started wandering in and we'd serve them uh, what they wanted and, and and you only had one beer in those days, it was only uh, yes. uh, yeah, only the one beer to, to serve and that all came in crates, there was no such thing as bottle bags or anything of that nature. It was just put two bottles or four bottles or six bottles on the counter and they had to put them in the car and uh, uh, pay for them and off they went. Uh, so then uh, Friday we got through and it was quite busy, uh, we, we, we were very happy with what was happening on Friday. So we opened it again on Saturday and... Uh, uh, got there about 11 o'clock we opened it and um, uh, 
by three o'clock in the afternoon, cars were queued from the hotel car park and up Jetty Road to the end of Jetty to, to Victoria Terrace at the top of uh, Jetty Road and across the road from there was the police station. <laughs> so the policemen that lived there, they had policemen living in them in those days, uh, they could see that this um, Jetty Road was blocked. Mm. So they called the Port Adelaide Police and two policemen came over and they had to stand on the road on, the sat- on that Saturday afternoon and... Uh, hold the traffic to the left-hand side because the, the the trolley buses were coming down there in those days too. They had electric trolley buses okay, coming down yes. the Jetty Road there in those days. The train had stopped and they had the trolley buses. So the trolley bus had to get down. So the police kept the cars that were wanting to turn into our car park um, on one side of the road and the, other, the cars could go the other. So anyway, that day it was just pandemonium. Yeah. We finished up. We had four of us working, selling, uh, selling beer, um, that day and we almost ran out of stock that we had bought for the whole of the Christmas period in, 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 in the one, in, in the, the two day, days, yeah. you see. And uh, so um, anyway, uh, uh, what we had to do on Monday, we had to ring me because it was only Monday to Friday that we had to get uh, get back into business the again. new order, yeah. Uh, so anyway, we um, rang the brewery and told the brewery about what, what had happened and so... The next thing on Wednesday, they'd sent a semi-trailer uh, of beer down for us and we'd ma- managed, luckily, uh, we, we, we knew a few of the business around and we got some rollers that we could roll the, the crates off the, the semi-trailer uh, and make another stack of beer. Yes. And um, uh, so we had another semi of beer ready for, um, uh, for, the, for that next week. Uh, for that week and uh, we opened on Thursday and on Saturday we'd sold out all the stock we'd had left over and everything. We were completely out of beer in that shed. You, by, what, what was it like? What, you know, what, what, were your, what were your parents saying? They must have been just shaking their heads in, in disbelief at this well, No one could be happening. No one could believe yeah. it. No one, the police couldn't believe it. Yeah. And on the, on the Saturday, the Christmas Day Saturday, they had four policemen uh, and they, the police were on our side. They weren't. They weren't against us or anything. They were. They, they were on our side, and they were directing the traffic, and they were making sure the traffic behaved themselves. Wonderful! And you had the police directing. Oh the traffic yeah, for, all the way. And you had in, inadvertently invented the drive-through bottle shop. Virtually, yes. At that stage, so yeah. so that was that was Christmas. But we had to then go go through New Year. Then so we had the Christmas. The brewery had to come down and fill us up again. <laughs> A big load, bigger load than uh, for, for for the New Year. It was 1955. Mm. Something else pretty wonderful happened in in 1955 as well because that's the year that Seymour and Doris opened the smorgasbord at the Buckingham Arms and, and they created a new dining area for the Heritage Hotel. And, and again, I've heard people talk about just what a game changer it was. Oh, so yeah, what, was, what is the this story? This was un- unbelievable. Seymour had this notion about... Uh, uh, fine dining and uh, mm. and this, this buffets. He'd seen it on the ships. He'd uh, seen it when he travelled. Uh, you know, the buffet was a, was a, was a thing that, uh, uh, that 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 excited him. And uh, when he came back to Adelaide, he had taken over the Buckingham Arms, and he um, decided to um, um, build a uh, make a buffet uh, uh, 
a permanent buffet. Um, we, we, we had done buffets in hotels, you know. We, we just called it, a, you know, you had buffet dining mm. where you just put food out on a table and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, there were various buffet desserts and buffet yes. things like that. So anyway, but um, uh, so, but this was done immaculately. Um, he had the huge long table, uh, big curved table and he'd have three, four whole turkeys cooked. He'd have a, two big snappers. Uh, in in the air and uh, the variety of foods, salads and everything, uh, nothing refrigerated. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all, all out in the, all out uh, just out there and uh, in the air conditioning. Uh, yeah, yeah, good. Uh, yeah, that, that, that were that rattled a bit too, but. Uh, uh, that, but they were the days. They were no one ever thought of uh, you mm. know. There was no ever ever any thought of uh, of this type of thing. But and what happened was um, he, he built this room and it held sixty people. Yes, and uh, thought that was good enough. And uh, in those days, the prices commission set the price of food that you were allowed to charge for for a meal. I'm sitting here shaking my head. Uh, okay. Um, Two things: if you, if you charged for a meal and it was three shillings, you were not allowed to charge for tea or coffee after. But if you had a meal that was under three shillings, or not, um, and under three shillings, mm. you could charge sixpence for tea or coffee, coffee afterwards. But if you went to three shillings, you couldn't. And at Christmas Day, they set the price for a Christmas dinner at seventeen and sixpence. Okay. No, no, seven and sixpence. Seven sorry, and sixpence. Seven and sixpence. Okay. Se- sorry, yes. seven and sixpence was the price of a Christmas dinner served in a hotel. And what did Seymour apply for for the smorgasbord luncheon? Price? Yeah, Seymour went to the prices commission and said that told him what he was doing, and he said he needed ten shillings for to put on this fabulous meal for mm. people, and you know, people that they almost. Almost laughed at him, I think, yes. because uh, no one charged ten shillings for, uh, outrageous. for, for outrageous when yeah. uh, when it's you know seven and sixpence was Christmas dinner. Uh, so anyway, no Seymour said, no, I've got to charge ten shillings for this meal. So uh, anyway, the the opening he had uh, uh, there were sixty people in the dining room and full. It had been full on uh, on bookings, mm. and uh, uh, within a half an hour there were thirty people waiting outside for the next sitting because uh, they kept the, they kept the buffet open till three o'clock in the afternoon. So when the tables were emptied, someone had to go and take their place. Yeah. So this, this, this just took off like, you know, ducks in a duck pond. And uh, within 12 months he had to uh, take over areas, a, a passageway between the front bar and the kitchen and he turned that into more dining uh, to get it more mm. and then eventually shut the front bar down completely and turned that into more dining, another 40 seats he got in where the, the front bar was. So eventually, uh, and in the end, uh, some few years later, he, we built on another room uh, that held 100 people and was called the Northcote Room. Oh, yes. So, uh, so we had the Northcote Room, the... Uh, uh, front bar and uh, the uh, main dining room, and altogether we could seat uh, just over two hundred people. And in the in the years that we had it from uh, nineteen fifty five to um, what was it last year to twenty twenty, mm. it had served over four 
million buffet meals, over four million buffets. Mm, what a year, 1955, the, the, the drive-through, the drive-in, the, and, 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 and the Buckingham Arms. What a great year. Yeah, it was. Now, you mentioned a moment ago uh, Wyala, um, and, and I read the, a story about your involvement in the Air Hotel um, in Wyala uh, in 1960, um, and um, and and that that caused quite a splash. I mean, Seymour and Doris really went to town. With what it. Seymour did to the design, and he re- rehashed a lot of it. Mm. He wanted this big, long bar built, this massive, long, slender bar uh, with a one end uh, and a saloon, a, a saloon attached to one end, yes. and then the the big bar at the other. And this bar was a U-shaped bar and down the centre was a column with glass refrigerated cabinets and all the refrigerated, uh, top of the refrigeration held glasses. Um, so if you went there, you got a, a cold pint glass for your, for your pint and... Uh, uh, and um, um, and all washed by these uh, new electric yeah, glass washing, washing machine. Yeah, glass washing machine all next to every tap. All this stuff next to every tap. And so... You know, Number one, it was the longest front bar, bar in South Australia. Australia. Yeah. So he he didn't do things by halves. Right. Are, are you saying that these these um, um, these cases, uh, these cabinet refrigerated cabinets, was was that something quite new as well to, to get a refrigerated glass for your beer? Or, it, it, or had it, that been it, around for some time? No, 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 no. It was very yeah, that was very rare. The first ones were here again at the Buckingham Arms. But they were only little fridges. They were only tiny little fridges that he, yes. he used to use special glasses that he wanted to do. But he also realised that, you know, having refrigerated glasses made, number one, your beer so much better. Yeah. And at Wyala, when, when half the year was uh, 100 degrees plus, it was... Uh, so by um, when, when they opened there, they, they were doing 109 18-gallon kegs per week, oh. that hotel, and they said it was the biggest beer consumption Hotel in South Australia, 109 18-gallon kegs per week. A week. Mm, and, uh, and were they coming, uh, were they, how were they, were no, they coming by, by them road? No, by road, yeah, we were yeah. ride transport. <clears throat> and you said uh, before uh, there was only one beer. Yeah. What was the, By then, no, by, by then there were two beers. You, you, your father, Seymour, had been behaving himself with the police in so much so that, you know, the police had been helping him with his new initiative uh, with this, um, um, you know, drive-up beer. Um, but he, he, while he's staying out of hot water with the law, he, he did cross swords with the Australian Hotels Association over the humble counter meal and, and I believe it caused quite a stir at the time. Do, yes, do you was, remember that? Were you well, involved in that? Oh, well, yeah, very yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> I thought in you fact, were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I was the, uh, the very leader of it. No, Seymour, Seymour at that stage was very busy with his, his other hotels but uh, I was down the hotel at the Largs Pier with my mother uh, and Tony by that stage had um, moved away and actually he'd gone to Narracourt in the uh, in the in the fifties, he went down and spent a, quite a bit of time at Narracourt okay. uh, in fifty five. Uh, some of the boys, particularly um, uh, one group of boys, they worked for the Shell Company that was on the wharf, uh, straight up the from Jetty Road, straight across about a mile from the hotel uh, on the on the Port River. And at lunch times, uh, these boys um, uh, would like to have a 
uh, a, a, a tipple. And one of one of them, particularly one of the older ones, he he drank uh, Gilded Edge all the time, Gilded Edge whiskey all the time, and the boys liked their their schooner of beer. Uh, so um, what they did to me, they they'd ring me up and uh, tell them tell them that tell me that they would find out what I had was serving for the day, and uh, they would order a meal from me uh, at the. And I said, right, I'll have an Odma bar for you with your gilt edge and two or mm. three schooners of beer uh, at 12 o'clock and you had, uh, you'd be there by five past 12 and, uh, uh, and so um, um, that, that kicked, kicked, it, kicked it off at the start. Yes. But that, that was just done, no one knew anything about that. That, mm. was, that just happened every day, these boys, well, yeah. not every day, yeah. three days a week, four days a mm. week, these boys would ring me up. We'd have the meals there ready for them. They'd come into the bar and sit there. And then a few other customers would come in and they'd say, well, can we get a meal? You know, can we get mm. a meal? And they said, well, why not? And we'd tell them what was happening. They'd order a meal. We'd get it for them. And uh, all of a sudden one day um, uh, we get a notice from the, from the AHA uh, that an inspector, and in those days the AHA had their own hotel inspectors ah. that went around and policed how the hotels operated, whether you were serving half nips or of, of, uh, which, of whiskey. Which, which you couldn't do. You no, could only it was illegal, serve a full measure. Full measure it? only if you were serving halves. Yeah. You, were, you, were, you could be prosecuted by the AHA. And one of them was that, that it was a 60-pound fine for serving a meal across the, a bar, that a, a room a room that held a bar in it. Now this is the funny thing: room mm. that held a bar, bar in, in it. it. Okay, you could not serve a meal, a meal in, that in, room. In, in that room. And on the licensing plan, you had to have designated dining rooms. So you had a designate. You could have yes designated, but they couldn't have a bar in a designated dining room. Okay. So anyway, um, uh, I got back to the AHA through this inspector uh, that this hotel, the Largs Pier, was serving. Meals to customers in through the bar. So anyway, um, next thing we we get this order from the um, uh, from the uh, hotels association, and as it was then, uh, that um, uh, we we had to stop serving meals. And we said, you know, buggy. <laughs> Sorry, screen <laughs> the print. Um, no, we, we, we are going to continue serving, we will continue serving meals. And they said, well, you, you know, you can't. So mm. anyway, we, next thing we, we get this notice that we've been fined. And so we said, well, we're not paying the fine. Um, and it went before the executive of the AHA and they sent us a letter, which is, uh, uh, and it's been noted in the Gazette, uh, that they they had reduced the fine to twenty five pounds if we would stop serving meals in the bar, and uh, again we said no, we're going to keep on serving meals in the bar. Uh, so therefore, we were fined twenty five pounds, mm. but we kept on serving meals. So anyway, um, it worked out that. Um, we found out that what the uh, the law, because they've been talking, we'd been discussing it so much. You um, could order. There was no, nothing against you ordering a meal at a, in a bar room, but it could not be served in the bar room. Ah. So there was nothing against you. Someone going up to the counter and ordering a meal, 
but it had to be served in a dining room. In the dining room. Yeah. So anyway, at the Largs Pier, right the right Largs Pier on the uh, at the front of the Largs Pier, um, next to the saloon bar was a, a room we called the Gold Room, which was a registered dining room. So what happened, uh, we came up with the idea that you went up to the bar and you ordered your meal, you got given a, a, a ticket with mm-hmm. a number on it. Yes. And um, when the meal came, it got served at a table in the, regi- in the official dining room. Your number was called out, Mr Jones, your number four is now served. Uh, and you walked into the dining room, mm. you picked up your plate and your cutlery and crockery and walked out to the bar and ate the meal in the bar. In the bar. So... When did common sense prevail? When did, when did that all change? Did it take a it few a, years? It took a while. Yeah, yeah. It, took, it took a little while. Uh, yeah. But, but we, what we did then, but it got, all of a sudden at Largs Bay, it got so popular that we had this big lounge that uh, could accommodate 150 people seated at a time in, the, in what they call, we called the patio lounge. And we had... Forever since 1955, we've been doing functions out there for Rotary, mm-hmm. uh, serving meals out there. We've got a bar at the other end there. Yes. <laughs> no one ever worried no, about no, that. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that. That had never worried anybody. We did weddings, mm. that sort of thing. But oh, that, that, that seemed perfectly all right. So next thing we, we were doing from this bar, from this room, we started selling, serving uh, uh, meals out into the, uh, in, into the patio lounge. And this became... Again, very, very popular to the extent that at the far end of the lounge, we built another kitchen just to service the, the lounge itself. So at this stage of the piece, this became what they call the businessman's lunch. Yes. Oh, it did it. The businessman's the lunch. The businessman's lunch. Yeah. We were getting 150 plus people a day coming in for, for, from businessmen and a businessman's lunch was a lunch. It would start off with when you gathered together, you'd yeah, be at the bar yep, and, yep. and you would have either a beer or a, a spirit if you had a beer. You would go to the table and, and you would order your – always a, an entree. Mm-hmm. It was usually oysters or something of that nature. You'd have oysters or, or a, a, a specialty dish to start off with. You had your main course, which is usually either a fish, a flounder, or us, and we did then bring in this sizzling steak, uh, and then you then you'd finish up with cheese uh, and greens. But in the meantime, with your, your your meal, the average businessman lunch was a bottle of wine per person mm-hmm. and a bottle of port for between the table. Between the to table f- to finish off with. So, a businessman's lunch virtually when basically most of the businessmen lunch came at, at between twelve thirty and one. And would finish between three and three thirty. So, yes, uh, and that was a businessman's lunch. And it got to the stage that more business was done over a businessman's lunch than was done in the actually in offices, and, and and it became hugely popular all over. That pubs just couldn't exist or didn't exist without mm. having these businessman's lunches, lunch. yeah. which was all tax deductible. By yes. the by the, yes. the company. That's so, what do you think happened next? <laughs> that's right. That, that's Fringe benefits tax. Mm. <laughs> we, we've talked about six o'clock closing. Um, 
what was it like? What was the six o'clock swill like? Oh, Just paint know, a picture for people who've never, ne- who never saw it. Well, if you can it. picture a, a hotel, and honestly, this this was every night. Um, it wasn't just a, uh, a flash in the pan like a, a disco on a Saturday night or something like mm. that. Every night at, well, and even the day um, when we took over the Mansfield Park Hotel in 1963, and that was in a very much a working man's area. Yes. Uh, at 12 noon, uh, and like at the at the Largs Pier, 12 noon, the boys had a half an hour to break from the factories oh. and we would have to have 60 pints lined up at the bar at the Mansfield Park for these blokes that had rushed in, want two pints of beer in their half hour and get back to work within a half hour. So the six o'clock swill was most of the uh, workers knocked off at 4.30 was a okay. was a time yes. and a lot then didn't knock off till 5 o'clock. So 4.30 and 5 o'clock were the, the basic knock-off times for factories uh, especially in Port mm. Adelaide and mm. all, all that district. So what would happen is at 4.30, this influx of people would come in uh, to the hotels and start having a drink together. And it was always in what they called a school. There was usually four, three, four, five, six people uh, and and av- av- you worked out that, right, uh, with five of you, you could have five beers by between half past four and... Uh, and six o'clock. Yes. Thing. So uh, each one would get what they called a shout. Yes. And uh, so um, you had this um, uh, this every night, and it became almost the same five or six every night that uh, stuck together. Mm. They got in their school. There'd be another school next to them. That they might challenge people that. Uh, in the seventies, the eight ball came into. Yes. Uh, darts was very popular. Uh, and that's smoking, of, smoking at the bar. Yeah, all yeah, smoking. All, everyone yep. smoking. Yeah, everyone yep. smoking. Everyone yep. drinking, uh, except no women. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. women was illegal for them to come into the bar. And, and there were no, uh, there were no carpets on the floor. Uh, no carpets. No, Terrazzo uh, was the biggest thing yeah. on the floor. And, and, and what happened to the cigarette butts? I guess they all, everything ended up. On everything the was on the floor yeah. with beer slopped all over mm. them, and uh, and and by six o'clock at night, the, the floors was. A wash and uh, uh, and uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, heavily intoxicated or drunk mm. <laughs> uh, people starting to wander around the, the place, and then at, at five past six, the a bell would ring. The five past or five two? Five of well, six to five past. Yeah, yeah. Five, but between six and five, some had, some had rung it at yeah. five two to let people know that it was coming up. Okay. But but six o'clock was the the deadline bell. Yes. So you had a, a half an hour then to consume your drinks mm. and uh, and be out of off the premises by half past by half past six. Yes. You had to be off the premises by half. That bar had to be emptied by half past six, and off very often. A, a police officer, especially if it was a local policeman, uh, and, and at least once or twice a week, the local policeman had come down between ten past six and and half past six and make sure mm. that people were 
getting off the thing. And leaving in an orderly fashion. And leaving, leaving be, be, because, very much in an orderly because, fashion. Because, you know, there'd be, oh. yeah, there'd be a bit of trouble, you oh, know, guys yeah. throwing down a lot of beers fairly quickly. Very, very quickly. You, you didn't have licensed security guards. You, no, I don't no, think you had any security no, no, guards, no, did no, you? No, 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 it was, it was only either the barman or you, yourself that, uh, and, you know, but, and the other thing too, remember every time you wanted to have a pee there and you, you, they didn't have indoor toilets mm. in, the, in hotels in those days. All the toilets were out in the out in the backyard, you, you walked out the door at, and there would be a lot of people queuing up at, at yes. 6 o'clock. And, yeah. but, they're, they're, and, uh, but the big thing was that at, at right on 6, everybody had rushed to the bar to, and mm. most of them had ordered two beers, yeah. right on 6. Yeah. And, 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 and the barman had usually give it a bit of latitude, 5, 10 past 6, they'd still be pouring unless the policeman had come in the door. Yeah. Uh, and so therefore they had, they then sculled their two beers between 10 past 6 and uh, and half past 6 and uh, and and, uh, and went out. And uh, mm. uh, So it was a... Very uh, interesting time, and uh, if then there were the few lucky ones that um, a lot of bars and a place like, as you say, the New Exchange at Port Adelaide, yes. and that there were little cubby houses, and yes. those that knew got to stay in the cubby house for <laughs> a little bit longer. About the the Matthews family and and the the music scene. Yeah. That really started off in the just in the sixties, and the sixties kicked off this music thing, as I say, with these uh, charity permits and yes. uh, okay. and that type of thing. It um, it really built up. Um, uh, Sixty three was uh, uh, was the start of having uh, some reputable um, local bands playing, but nineteen sixty five was my first real experience of. Uh, uh, an international um, um, group, uh, or not an but a top Australian group, was the Deltones. Oh, yes. Uh, I got on to Sydney and I found out their operator and on Christmas in 1965, uh, the Largs Pier, we started running dinner dances uh, through December. Uh, and we would, uh, and what we, we featured was that we bought the Deltones over from Sydney and uh, put them playing at the at the hotel, mm. and uh, it went over extremely well. A lot of uh, big companies had their f- Christmas functions, and uh, to have someone like Pee Wee up there, you know, singing and uh, yes. and that, and they they yes. were bonds of blokes. They were lo- lovely, you know, real real gentlemen than that. And uh, well, ACDC was the first time they ever played as a as a band was at the Largs Pier. Uh, they 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 came down to the Largs Pier as a as a group, but. Uh, they did. They played in individual bands. Um, uh, fraternity. They, 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 they. Bon Scott was in fraternity. Jimmy Barnes in '63 was only a, a teenage, sixteen-year-old, and yeah. he used to come and watch them play. And uh, um, eventually, in the in the '70s, we put him on the stage regularly. Um, but uh, when they when this first day that um, ACDC came. Uh, we had at the, at the big lounge that was there that, as I say, was standing with no chairs in which we took the chairs mm. out with for the discos. Yes. Uh, uh, they, um, uh, you know, could, could hold 250 people and uh, uh, and they came in, they had a furniture van and they parked outside the hotel, a big furniture van, and in it they had 60, 60 100-watt speakers. <laughs> and a 100-watt speaker in those days was a piece of... Furniture <laughs> uh, that was at three feet high and a, 
an 18 inches <laughs> wide and we had a 10 metre wall uh, across the back of the lounge and they had these speakers on top of each other, three high. Yes. And they they left uh, fifteen speakers still in the in the, <laughs> in, the in the band. So it was a bit quiet that night. Then didn't get so them anyway. All out. The next thing that upset me completely, and I've never seen it before. Sorry, I had never seen it before. Was that uh, they had these wires they put uh, across the dance floor with tape over them mm. to a mixing machine. And I hadn't seen a mixing machine uh, at this stage of the piece, and I'm asking, "What? what what's this here? You can't have this on the yeah, dance floor. Yeah. A, this is, this is uh, you know, people will be tripping over it." And they said, "This is what it, this is what they do now. They they don't dance. They just <laughs> stand there and they, they watch." <laughs> so anyway, um, ACDC went on that night. Well, by Twelve o'clock that night, and they were on till uh, later. I think, but I think in those days it was we 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 could go later than that. I think mm. we could go to one o'clock by then. Um, and by half past eleven, twelve o'clock, we were there were phone calls coming to the hotel from a mile, two miles away, because right along the foreshore at Semaphore was the sand hills, and with all these uh, bass yes. speakers, the ground was rumbling. A mile, two miles away, <laughs> <laughs> and the comments we got that was in the paper, in the local paper, the noise that came from the Largs Pier was astounding. Well, they went on to be one of the biggest bands in the world, so that's you know, right. There's and, a claim and, to fame there, and I have another claim to fame. What was that? They charged me three hundred and fifty dollars for the night, and I that that first night I got one hundred and fifty people in there at three at two dollars a head. <laughs> Uh, I got $300, I lost $50 on <laughs> ACDC and I think yeah. I must be the only person that yeah. ever lost, <laughs> ever <laughs> lost money on the, <laughs> on the door tape uh, of ACDC, but uh, that's a bit of nonsense. 1966, the federal government abolished the, the, the Antiquated Act that married women could not be employed. Um, and then in 1967, South Australia passed legislation relating to barmaids. What... What did that entail? What what changes came about? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. That, uh, uh, as I said earlier, that um, originally there was some before the legislation changed. Originally, there was some four hundred and fifty barmaids in South Australia, uh, registered barmaids, and uh, then um, by the the fifties and that there, there were only thirty four. Um, registered barmaids in South Australia, so uh, it had got down to that. Yes, but um, the whole thing about it is that um, that, that uh, there was no uh, law against a, a waitress serving drinks on a tray to a table. That 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 was uh, they weren't allowed to actually work behind the bar, behind the bar, and yes. pour beer. So um, in a lot of our hotels, we had these waitresses. But the only way they could get well, they could get their own they could go behind the bar and pour their own drinks and put it on the tray and take it to people in the tables. Uh, so we, we we had numerous ones uh, numerous of uh, these waitresses like a, a hotel like the the Largs Pier would have had four or, uh, four or five permanent um, um, or permanent casual 
waitresses mm. uh, who knew how to pour beer and did pour beer. And if they were in the bar and there was a bloke there that wanted a beer, well, <laughs> they poured the beer. The beer. <laughs> so, you know, really uh, things were a bit slack in those days. Remember, things were very slack. Along a yeah. bar, there'd be ashtrays along the bar and a barman could actually physically smoke mm. behind the bar while they while they were working, and they put their cigarette in the. It was a bar. different world. Different world, yeah. and and there was nothing. Uh, they, they stopped, no one stopped that type of thing. But but one of the things that that hasn't changed is that is that there were very capable women who who should have been allowed to work, and and Seymour saw that, and so he had a, a rather unique system to to enable that to happen. Yeah. This happened with mainly with management type uh, situations. Yes. There, there was a two things that I that I that, uh, that he knew that that a single woman, a woman not married, could become a licensee of a hotel. So Seymour did employ in certain circumstances very good women as licensees of the hotel, which we did on. A couple of occasions at the uh, at the uh, feathers, yes, we employed them. But the big one was that uh, what what uh, we did in those days, we employed married couples uh, as um, to run hotels. Yes, and yes. Most of the managers, well, virtually all of the managers, lived in the hotels where they worked. Uh, mm. There wasn't this living out of away from the hotel. No. They lived in. And so what the, the manager himself got a very substantial wage, uh, a little bit better than the, the ordinary person, uh, but his wife never got paid. But in, uh, in, in uh, uh, allowing that, they got their board and keep free. So board and keep and an above um, award wage, if you like. The manager. And, and to, to balance it out, yeah, and, so in effect. Yeah, and what, what we did find, of course, was that in, mo in many or m most of the cases, the, uh, the lady um, was a better manager than the man. <laughs> and uh, at least what they did, they knew uh, how to give service. They knew uh, they were quite good bookkeeping. Yes. Uh, they, they didn't stand at the bar and drink, whereas the husband, who uh, was meant – was the – publicity officer of the hotel <laughs> and the average manager of a hotel at five o'clock of an afternoon spent a lot of his time outside the bar drinking with customers. Yes. And it was a standard thing that, that the manager had to socialise with, uh, uh, with, with the customers. customer to keep yeah. people at the, at the hotel. The Matthews name is also synonymous with the Feathers Hotel. It caught national headlines. Um, this suburban hotel um, winning winning a very prestigious award. Yes, yes, that, that was very good. Um, when, when we opened up, it was very English. It was mm. very English. We had uh, uh, silver service. Um, uh, we flamed your Chateaubriands at the table. Yes. You, we carved your uh, duck or your food at the table. Uh, we flamed um, Alaska, bomb Alaskas at the end of your meal. Uh, and... All the waiters were dressed in dinner suits and uh, waitresses um, uh, were in aprons. and uh, Sommelier. Uh, sommelier. We had a sommelier mm. that had his little sommelier and tasted your wine before uh, you, um, you drank it. And uh, it was a very, very luxurious hotel and especially for uh, Adelaide. It was sort of the uh, 
the, the Feathers and the South were, were the uh, hotels of prestige in, in Adelaide. Okay. And we nominated um, the Feathers Hotel with the Feathers Hotel Table to Hope menu, <laughs> uh, which was a Table to Hope menu meant that uh, it, was, it was a big menu, but you only paid one price for the uh, for the whole menu. Yes, uh, you didn't order. You could have extras like oysters or something of that nature were an extra, but the menu itself was a, a one price menu mm. which had uh, soup, fish, entree, main course, sweets, and coffee. Uh, cheese and greens. Yes. Um, no, cheese and greens was often an extra, but uh, okay. yeah, but you had a, a menu that was one price. Mm. So we entered um, the table to hope menu in the uh, uh, in the in the exhibition in Melbourne, and Valerie, my wife, and myself went across in uh, to the uh, dinner and the presentations, and uh, uh, it came up that uh, the Feathers Hotel won the uh, gas award for. Uh, uh, the best table to hope menu in uh, in Australia. In 2011, the the National AHA recognised your parents Seymour and Doris, your brother Tony, and yourself for for your 70 year contribution to the hotel industry in South Australia. A decade has passed since then. Your parents and Tony have passed on. You uh, guy are in a sense the custodian. Um, of all of that valuable knowledge, uh, and and I know you've you've been putting that down, committing that. Um, can you tell me about the book that you've written? Yeah, I might have a drink as well. We've been talking for a while. You've been doing all the talking <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it's been great. Um, yeah, th- th- this uh, started uh, some. Well, started more than that. It started many years ago. I happened to there was. A lot of paperwork that had come through, and I, I have a very bad habit of not throwing <laughs> things out. And in fact, I have my first bank statement <laughs> from the National Bank that in 1956, when I banked my first, and I've got the the original bank statement, and most of the bank statements for, from there on. So wow. I've got a box full of bank statements, and bank statements can tell a lot of stories. They can. I've. Uh, I have a chronicle, uh, uh, chronicle from every year from 1940 onwards uh, of my life, which included a lot of their life. Yes. Um, but then I, the book, um, it's here, in, it's ready for print now. Yeah, we're looking and at this, it. And this is a fam. Seymour and Doris. Seymour and Doris. This is a family book. It's yes. not a. It's a, a book for the family, mm. uh, and. Um, uh, we want we want want the younger fourth generation uh, to uh, know what went on and then and pass that on to the fifth generation and we hope hope the sixth generation yes. uh, that that will be in the industry for uh, a long time. Guy, wonderful! I really enjoyed reading the family history. Um, Seymour and Doris, it's been. Uh, excellent chatting with you uh, I, I, th- I hope that uh, through these podcasts some of the history of hotels is kept um, so uh, I guess I'd say thank you and really appreciate your time. Yeah thanks a lot and uh, I hope in the future when, when we come up with some of the other uh, quirky things that, are, that have happened in the hotel industry over the last uh, you know, 100 years uh, we might be able to talk again. <laughs>